We're beginning this morning uh, something new in our chapel that I think will become a tradition, and that is hearing from one of our faculty or staff members, in this case a faculty member, about their own personal journey in Christ, their own personal journey in life, which includes Christ. And I've asked uh, the faculty members that I've invited to do this over the next two semesters um, to share as much as they can of their life as they would with friends if they were sharing it uh, in their own living room. So this isn't uh, exactly a lecture. It isn't exactly preaching. But it is an honest sharing from the depths of their lives. And this morning, we have Dr. Nivaldo Tro, who is going to be sharing. And I'd, I'd like to introduce Neva, as he's known here on campus by many of you, Dr. Tro. I'd like to introduce him in a, in a little bit more informal way. Actually, second semester, he'll be bringing a lecture to us as well, and I'll give him a more formal introduction at that point. As you know, he's a professor here in our chemistry department. He's a physical chemist. He's a, a friend to so many people on this campus that it would be hard to mention them all because it would probably be most everybody here. But somehow in the midst of that, uh, I just saw his publishing record the other day. I got it in the mail as uh, we get it uh, each year. And his publishing record is incredible. I don't know when he finds the time to do that. He is a family man, and much of what he's experienced in his family you'll get to hear about today. But I've seen him exert very sacrificial and deep love for his family members, all of them. He comes uh, from an interesting background in the sense that his parents came from Cuba uh, during the revolution there when Fidel Castro overthrew the government, and so they escaped from that regime and came here to the States. And I'd like right now to take one second and introduce his parents are here with us, Mr. and Mrs. Tro, and uh, then I'll introduce Pam in a moment. Mr. and Mrs. Tro would please stand. Let's welcome them. And his dear wife, Pam Tro, is also with us, and I'm going to have her raise her hand and wave at you. There she is. I think it's very rare that a student body and a faculty and a staff would gather and be able to hear what the life story of one of our esteemed faculty members is, but that's our honor today. So let's welcome Neva Tro. Perfect. Good morning. My spiritual journey. That is my topic for today. The concept of a journey, at least to me, implies a beginning, an end, and some sort of well-charted course in between. I remember my high school youth minister telling me what that course should look like. He said, our spiritual life may have its ups and its downs, but in general, there should be an ever-increasing upward slope towards more righteousness, near-perfect church attendance, regularly scheduled quiet times, and more and more joy. When you're a mature Christian, he said, you won't even want to sin. I wish that was the story I had to report today. 
but unfortunately it is not. My spiritual journey has felt more often less like a journey and more like a battle. A battle in which I struggle simply to hold the line. My spiritual battle has many fronts. Today let me just focus on two. The first I'll call my battle against unbelief. For some, faith in God comes easily. For me, that is not the case. I struggle with the idea that maybe, just maybe, God does not exist. I will tell you about my struggle, and I will tell you also about some things that have helped me. The second front I'll talk about today is my struggle against disease and pain, especially related to my wife's multiple sclerosis. Over the last eight years, I have watched her health deteriorate one nerve cell at a time. It has been harder than I can explain. At times, this has made me bitter towards God and even towards her. I will tell you about this struggle and, again, some things that have helped. First, my battle against unbelief. I am trained as a scientist, a chemist specifically, and a physical chemist even more specifically. My field strives to explain the macroscopic in terms of the molecular. When I look at water boiling, I don't just see bubbles and steam. Rather, I see heat that shakes up water molecules, shakes them up so much that the hydrogen bonds that hold liquid water together eventually rupture, and the water molecules break free into the gas phase. That's what happens when water boils. <laughs> to me, my shirt, my new red shirt, doesn't just fade in the sun, but rather, billions upon billions of photons strike the shirt over and over again until these poor molecules just fall apart. Eventually, the shirt's color, itself a result of the interaction between light and molecules, gradually fades. Such is my world. It is a rich, it is a rich world. I really delight in knowing the unseen causes of all these processes. However, I have a suspicion that if we can explain simple things with reference to inanimate molecules and their interactions, then maybe, just maybe, we can explain complex things as well. As science has progressed, we have seemed to be able to do just that. For example, are you feeling in love today? Do you get sweaty palms and a racing heart when that special someone glances at your way? Scientists have found that your condition is caused by a little extra oxytocin coursing through your veins. Are you down today? Feeling depressed? Not enough serotonin in your nerve synapses. Not only can scientists correlate our most deeply held feelings to chemicals in our brains, but they can even induce them. If you give a patient respirin, a serotonin inhibitor, you make them feel as depressed as if a best friend had just died. Counter that with fluoxetine, a serotonin promoter, and the patient becomes happy again. It seems that we are co a collection of chemicals. A wonderful collection to be sure, but chemicals nonetheless. Even worse, the chemicals that make us up are all borrowed. The average carbon atom in our own bodies has been used by 20 other living organisms before we got them, and will probably be used by 20 more when we are gone. Does this bother you? It bothers me. It keeps me up at night. <laughs> In 
It makes me wonder how the concept of a soul fits into all this. It makes me wonder how, if I am made of chemicals following physical laws, I have any free choices whatsoever. It makes me fear that someday one of these chemicals will go wrong and it will be the end of me. It makes me wonder if someone like Carl Sagan might be right after all when he says, the cosmos is all there is and all that will ever be. I have often found myself uttering the prayer, God, I do believe, help my unbelief. I'm happy to say that at least on most days, I still believe in God in spite of my struggle here. Here are some things that have helped me. First, that we are made of chemicals is consistent with scripture. Genesis 3.19 says, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What is dust? Inanimate chemicals, mostly silicon dioxide to be exact. <laughs> That's what we're made of. Dust is made of chemicals. We are made of dust. We are made of chemicals. That didn't seem to bother the author of Genesis or the psalmist. Why should it bother me? Could it be just pride? Dust does seem a little beneath my perhaps overinflated self-image. Second, while physical laws and the interactions between chemicals may someday explain everything about us, it seems like too small an explanation. Not a wrong explanation, just one that is too small. G.K. Chesterton puts it best in his classic book, Orthodoxy. Materialism, which is what I'm talking about here, right? The, the view that everything is chemicals and, and their interaction. Materialism has a sort of insane simplicity. We have at once the sense of it covering everything and the sense of it leaving everything out. The materialist cosmos may be complete in every rivet and cogwheel, but still, his cosmos is smaller than our world. It is not thinking of the real things of the earth, of fighting peoples, or proud mothers, or first love, or fear upon the sea. You may explain the order in the universe by saying that all things, even our very souls, are leaves inevitably unfolding on an utterly unconscious tree, the blind destiny of matter. The explanation does explain, but it seems like too small an explanation. The parts seem greater than the whole. The third thing that has helped me. That the universe, including us, runs according to physical and chemical laws does not imply that it is impersonal. That is, the universe may follow physical laws, the chemicals in our brain may follow physical laws, not because they have to, but because they are willed to. Again, Chesterton puts it best. People feel that if the universe was personal, it would vary. If the sun were alive, it would dance. This is a fallacy. For the variation in human affairs is generally brought into them, not by life, but by death. A man varies his movement because of some slight element of failure or fatigue. The sun rises every morning. I do not rise every morning. But the variation is due not to my activity, but to my inaction. It might be true that the sun rises regularly because he never gets tired of rising. His routing might be due not to lifelessness, but to a rush of life. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children when they find some game or joy, joke that they especially enjoy. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence, of life. 
Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old, and I can attest to this. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. (laughs) For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. The repetition in nature may not be mere recurrence, It may be theatrical encore. Fourth, if the story of God is not true, it should be true. If an utterly unconscious universe created consciousness, love, joy, sex, beauty, music, art, and even pain, I willfully choose not to believe it. C.S. Lewis puts this idea best in his book, The Silver Chair, which is, of course, written for children. In one scene, the witch is trying to convince the children, the prince, and Puddleglum, remember Puddleglum is a marsh wiggle, that her underground world is the only real world, and that the world above the ground, Narnia, does not exist. Here's what the witch says. You have seen lamps, and so you imagined a bigger and better lamp and called it the sun. You've seen cats, and now you want a bigger and better cat and called it a lion. Well, that's a pretty make-believe, though. To say the truth, it would suit you all better if you were younger. And look how you can put nothing into your make-believe world without copying it from the real world, this world of mine, which is the only world. Come, all of you, put away these childish, childish tricks. I have work for you all in the real world. There is no Narnia, no overworld, no sky, no sun, and no Aslan. Then Puddleglum comes back. All you've been saying is quite right, I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always liked to know the worst and then put the best face on it. So I won't deny any of what you said. But there's more to be said even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things. Trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that, in that case... The made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But But four babies playing a game can make a play world that licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by my play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. Now for my second battle. While my battle with unbelief is primarily an intellectual one, my battle with disease and pain is primarily an experiential one. The two, of course, are related, as you will see. I used to be a person almost immune to pain, because I never really experienced much of it. Indeed, for most of my life, nothing very bad happened to me or to those close to me. I had great parents, went to good schools, including this one, met a beautiful lady in Page Hall who I married at a young age, and eventually went to Stanford for a PhD in chemistry. 
It was two weeks before the defense of my PhD thesis in 1989 that I first experienced any real pain. My wife went to the doctor because of some tingling sensation in her legs. Two days and many tests later, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, a disease of the central nervous system, a disease that has no cure. I remember my wife's response as if it was yesterday. Can I still have kids? She asked the doctor. Sure, he said. Many people with MS have kids. Okay, she said. My response was different. I cried for days, stayed up at night worrying. My heart, my stomach ached. What would the future hold for us? How could God allow this to happen? Was God even there? Several weeks ago, almost eight years after her initial diagnosis, my wife lay in a hospital bed, unable to move most of her body, barely able to even speak. I cried hysterically, and this is what she told me. I have no complaints, she said. I have two great kids, a great husband, and a great God. I stood in awe of this person I have called my wife for 14 years. Her faith and her peace are inexplicable. Our battle with MS over the last eight years in general and over the last several weeks in particular have been incredibly difficult. My sadness and desperation over Pam's ever-progressing disease has grown greater with each setback. Just when we seemed to adjust to one level of disability and thought, okay, we can live with this, she would get worse. Her increasing physical needs, as well as her lessening ability to meet our children's needs, left me with more and more to do at home. I was trying to be husband, father, mother, professor, housekeeper, and nurse, and it was not working. What time I did spend with Pam, I spent meeting her physical needs. Unfortunately, all I could think of during those times was how much she could not do. Why couldn't she do the things she used to? If she would just try harder. At times, I even grew angry with her for not being able to do more. My own fear of disease, for her, my children, and myself, grew to manic proportions. Every runny nose was pneumonia, every headache was a brain tumor, and every sleeping leg was a neurological disorder. There were several months when I even thought I might be getting MS. I experienced many symptoms, temporary loss of vision, constant dizziness, numbness, fatigue, and confusion. What was to become of this family? Where was God in all this? The reality of her disease fed my doubts about God. If God existed, why didn't he do anything to stop all this? There were days when, as hard as I tried to be strong, at least for the children's sake, I could not even stop crying. I have no easy answers to any of this. My wife still has MS, and while her condition is stabilized for the moment, the prognosis is that she will probably continue to worsen. Nonetheless, I can say that somehow, beyond my comprehension, God has met us in our pain. Before I tell you how, let me first explain a few things I do not believe. I do not believe that God has given us this disease to bring about some greater good. There is no greater good that I can conceive of that would somehow compensate for the pain to my wife, my children, and to myself. If God had some greater good in mind, he certainly could have achieved it some other way. God does not promise that he will bring some greater good out of our pain, only that he will be there with us. I also do not believe that if we just pray more that God will heal her. We have tried that for eight years. With every prayer method known, we have anointed with oil. We have laid hands. We have pleaded with the Lord. It has not worked. In some ways, I have tired of hoping and praying for the miracle that just won't come. I also do not believe that we have somehow suffered more than any of you. 
Life has pain, sooner or later, for all of us. Ours just happens to be a little sooner than most, and perhaps a bit more visible. Now let me tell you some ways in which God has met us in our struggle. I can say that he has, just not in the ways I have expected. First, God has been there in our pleasures. Yes, pleasures. While we have experienced a measure of pain over the last eight years, we have experienced some very real pleasures as well. What I have learned, and many times only stubbornly, is that pleasure is possible, even necessary, in the midst of pain. I remember a night at the dinner table about a year ago in which my heart snapped as I watched my wife struggle just to get food from her plate to her mouth. I then turned my head, and my two-year-old daughter uttered her first complete sentence, I love you, Daddy. Excruciating pain and true pleasure existing simultaneously side by side. That is the way life is, not just for me, but for all of us. A night at the symphony, an afternoon of wine tasting with good friends, fishing in a trout stream with my kids. These are all real pleasures that God has given our family in the midst of pain. I thank him for them, for they have kept me sane. Second, God has been there in community. I never imagined the difficulties that this disease would bring. I also never imagined the support I would receive from you sitting out here today. You have sent me notes and gifts. You have prayed with me, hurt with me, and cried with me. I have been privileged to see a side of this community that perhaps few get the chance to experience. It has convinced me that we are a community like no other. I have never been very brave or courageous, and my greatest fear is facing all of this alone. I cannot express how, in my darkest hours, your presence has comforted me. There are a few of you here today who were with us in the critical moments, when the doctors seemed to bring only more bad news when the insurance companies abandoned us, when all seemed hopeless, you were there. By loving me, you have taught me how to love. As I found myself asking where was God on all of this, I got an answer. He was there through you. Today, the support of this community has made it possible for Pam to be at home and cared for. It has allowed our family to be together again and has relieved me from the enormous task of trying to do everything myself. For that, I am eternally grateful. Third, God has been there mystically. I must confess that my scientific bent does not make me very sympathetic to spiritual experiences. But during Pam's hospitalization, I had an experience that I cannot easily forget. It happened on a Wednesday afternoon. Pam had been in the hospital several days and had undergone a number of tests. Earlier that afternoon, the doctors had put her in a giant magnet to to obtain an MRI image of her brain. Her doctor explained to me how the results of the MRI would help predict how much she might might recover from this particular attack. I got to the hospital about 3 o'clock p.m. and walked into her room. Pam was not back from the test yet. The room felt cold, lonely. In the corner, I spotted Pam's shoes. I walked over and touched them and cried. Ten minutes later, they wheeled her in. And about an hour later, we got the results from the test. According to her doctor, the MRI was as bad as he'd seen. The words sank in and I fell apart. I was surrounded by friends and family who consoled me, but it did not help. It seemed that life was over. 
After a while, two of my friends took me outside. They wanted to pray with me. I reluctantly went, not because I wanted to, but because I did not know what else to do. I certainly could not go in and face Pam. We sat outside the front lobby of Cottage Hospital. It was a warm, humid evening with a slight breeze playing with the maple leaves on the ground. My friends started praying. I kept crying. I do not remember what they prayed, but I do remember what happened next. I do not often feel comfortable praying aloud in small circles. It often makes me feel like I pray more for the ears of others than for the ears of God. Often I will refrain from such prayer, but not this time. In fact, in some ways, I could not keep the prayer from coming. As I began to pray, my tears stopped. My sadness disappeared, and in its place came a sense of peace. Every one of my senses became as aware as I have ever experienced. I heard every rustle of every leaf. I felt every wisp of breeze. I smelled the humidity in the air, and the prayer kept coming. For a few sacred moments, I think God thinned the veil between himself and me and allowed me to experience his joy, his peace, and his love directly. I walked back into the hospital room, and for the first time in many months, I looked at my wife and saw not what was missing, but what was there, her sense of humor, her strength, and her love. We had a great evening of talking, laughing, and finally watching our favorite TV show, Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> I expected God to answer my prayers by making the MRI news more positive. He did not do that. Instead, he gave me peace. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. I wish I could continue to believe the message of that verse with the intensity that I believed it that night. I would be lying if I, was to, if I told you that was so. However, I would also be lying if I told you that that night had come and gone. It has not. It lives with me and I draw strength from it. In my darkest hour, God gave me peace. Maybe the battle can be won after all. Thank you.